0: You're listening to Full Steam Ahead, a podcast about Purdue with Adam Bartels.
1: All right, welcome to Full
0: Steam Ahead, a podcast
1: about Purdue. I'm excited to introduce my guest today, a name I will admit I was unfamiliar with just a a few short weeks ago. But a shout out to uh, Tom Schott up at the uh, communications office up at Purdue for uh, suggesting this guy. As I was doing my research on him, I couldn't agree more that he is a a guy I wanted to have on the podcast so you guys can learn more about him and learn from him. Uh, He is a strategic communications consultant. He is an author. and We'll get into that in a little bit as well. He, most importantly, is a Boilermaker, and he is my guest on this podcast. He is Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, Adam. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks to Tom Schott for uh, bringing this together yeah not only one of the one of the sharpest communications minds going but i guess he's now my personal uh booking agent and you know so thanks to to Tom for for that he's one of the all-time greats
1: that's awesome yeah he also hooked me up with uh tim newton a few weeks ago another great guest and uh
0: there's a dangerous guy right there so uh <laughs> I, I you know
1: yeah all these Craner guys i had pete quinn on a uh, last, uh, couple weeks ago as well talking about uh, boiler business exchange so we're uh we're Pumping out the Cranert grads here.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, you know, I was, I'm very proud of my Krannert degree, but, but in all honesty, my major was sports information. Uh, That's where I spent, uh, I, I, you know, I attended a few classes, don't get me wrong, but I, I spent probably more time in Mackey Arena and Ross State Stadium than I did anywhere else on campus. But, but uh, it's fun to, uh, you know, think back on those times.
1: Nothing wrong with that. And it's, uh, it's worked out pretty well for you as we'll, we'll get into here on the podcast. As, uh, as we get started here, just kind of introduce people to you, where you're from, how you ended up at Purdue, and what you uh, we already kind of talked about what you majored in there.
0: Yeah, I grew up in Evergreen Park, Illinois, on Chicago's southwest side, went to Marist High School, which has produced uh, a lot of Purdue uh, Boilermakers over the years. Uh, you know, it's, I had have, I have no great reason for why I ended up at Purdue. My parents, growing up, my parents had friends that had kids at Purdue and at Notre Dame. And every year they went to the Purdue-Notre Dame football game. Remember remember that? Remember when we used to have that? Right. I know it's coming back. But uh, so I grew up with Notre Dame stuff and Purdue stuff. And was a fan of both schools and, and uh, applied to both schools. Didn't get into Notre Dame. Had been, got accepted early admission to Purdue. And uh, dove right in. So really, you know, I love to say I, I had done a lot of research. But it was really in those days... You know, we didn't apply to 12 or 16 schools and take the SAT seven times and all the things that 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 uh, that happened today. I just sort of liked uh, Purdue and wanted to go there. And uh, and when I didn't get into Notre Dame, the decision was made. But I, I never looked at Purdue as a consolation prize. I was very excited. Uh, it was kind of one and one A for me. And and uh, and as it turns out, Purdue was way way better for me, a better fit the opportunities that came my way, the relationships, uh, met my wife. I mean, the whole thing, it was uh, way better. Purdue was a much better uh, choice and option for me. And, uh, and I'm just glad it, it worked out that way. That's awesome. Sounds like a
1: similar story to how Tim Newton ended up at uh, Purdue as well. He talked about uh, his interest in wanting to go to Notre Dame as well. So that's really cool. And hey, we're glad to have you as a, as a Boilermaker. Talk about uh, just some of your, your favorite memories on campus.
0: Well, meeting my wife, uh, our parents actually introduced us, that Sarge Biltz's, may it rest in peace. Uh, And so we were, you know, I was 19, she was a year behind me, so I was a sophomore, she was a freshman. And uh, we've been married 37 years, so that's got to be number one. Joanne, her name is, uh, that's got to be number one. And then the next, you know, memories, you know, two through ten are all probably things that happened around Purdue athletics, you know, whether it was going to the Blue Bonnet Bowl, which was, you know, a dramatic win over Tennessee on New Year's Day 1980 or New Year's, New Year's Eve 79 into 80, I guess. Uh, We partied into New Year's Day for sure. But uh, you know, it was a great time. I, I was 19 years old, really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. knew I wanted to do something in sports and walked into uh, Mackey Arena to the Sports Information Office. And my world changed that day. And, and so just the road trips with Tim Clojo, who was one of my fellow, my buddies, and fellow SID volunteer student assistants. Uh, just all the, you know, Final Four trip as a senior in 1980 with that Joe Barry Carroll team. Yeah. You know, just so much fun around. You know, wrestling was my beat. I was the student, you know, kind of lead for publicity and wrestling. Uh, in uh, my junior and senior years. And so that was kind of my deal, my high school at that time. You know, Marist would become a wrestling power, but when I went there, we didn't have a program. The first wrestling meet I ever attended, I typed the play by play. I just sort of faked it. I, I, you know, I I had a lot of support. We had a lot, we had a great student staff, which we could talk about, many of whom have gone on to to great things. It was just an incredible uh, environment to learn how to be a communications person. That's where I learned it was in the sports information office with Tom Shoup and Paul Jensen. And then all the other students, uh, you know, who were, who, who we just had a blast and, and, uh, you know, long days at Mackey, long days at Ross say, you know, and then other sports too. So th- that, that was my, my college experience was really all about that for the most part.
1: That's awesome. Some, definitely some lifelong memories to take you with you there. And uh, I would have to agree with you on the, uh, the wife situation. I met my wife at Purdue as well. So, definitely the, you know, the best thing to come out of uh, earning a degree up there. <laughs> awesome. Right. Well, let's talk about your your career. You've had an awesome, uh, at least to me, a, a, a very interesting and exciting career that's spanned over many different roles in different places. So I kind of want to dive into that. I, uh, one of The first one I kind of want to talk about was the your work with the Dallas Mavericks. Was that your first job out of college or was there anything no. in between that?
0: You know, that was it. Graduation day, I didn't have a job and, and really just sort of hustled my way into an interview there, paid my own way uh, uh, to an interview. And, and um, you know, it's sort of an interesting lesson I learned. Again, I was 21 uh, and I, I could tell they were very nervous about the, the person who was interviewing me uh, was more of a broadcast professional. He would go on to win Emmy Awards and a long time director of live sports, most notably the Mavericks and the Texas Rangers. His name is Dave Burchett, won Emmys, did Olympics, lots of stuff. Uh, but he was sort of, he was put into this role as the public relations person. And he was very nervous about the stat crew. And when we had our, my interview with him, he said, could you do the stat crew? And I just said, absolutely. <laughs> and all I knew is I was going to ask Tim Clojo. And I had been on the stat crew at Purdue and, 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 uh, for, for, for basketball. And I knew that cloge knew all the forms and he had the whole thing wired. And I just said, yeah, I can do that. I mean, you know, I got it. And it was a great lesson to learn as a young person, you know, that in a job interview, you got to figure out what their pain point is, what solution you can offer to a problem. The person who's going to do the hiring has. And, uh, so I was very fortunate to, to get that, that job it was the summer before the very first season so I was literally on the ground floor with the Mavericks wow. stayed 18 seasons uh, saw the team you know kind of build through the draft and have some really good years and some really bad years uh, as well uh, you know Randy Whitman the great IU player uh, we had a lot of IU players yeah. we had Steve <laughs> Alford we had Uve Blob and Alford was the most fun to spar with Randy was so nice of a person. He he wouldn't really give it back that much. But I remember we had Randy uh, with Quinn Buckner years later as an assistant coach. We were two and 39 at the halfway point, And Randy looked at the newspaper and said, it looks like a typo. <laughs> and uh, so, but in those, in those lean years, I think that's where you do some of your best work. So all of it was great. And, and uh, uh, you know, one of the highlights being the Jason Kidd rookie of the year campaign that uh, uh, my my colleague Tony Faye and I ran with with Jason Kidd's uh Jason came to us and said, I'd like to win the Rookie of the Year. Grant Hill was off to a big lead. What do I need to do? <laughs> we put together a program. He they actually actually ended up tying and sharing the award, which was really fun. Uh so lots, lots of great experiences and adventures uh there uh as as a phenomenal, you know, first professional experience.
1: That's really cool. and uh, Jason Kidd, one of uh Became one of my favorite players later on. I'm a Phoenix Suns fan, so when he uh, made his way over to Phoenix, loved uh, watching him play over there with uh, Kevin Johnson, among others. Um, Talk about, um, did you have multiple different roles in through your 18 years there? And what were those? Yeah, you know,
0: I started as a PR assistant. I became the media relations or media services director. Did that for a long time. And then in 1996, became the VP of communications. And in that role, I also had broadcasting and the Mavericks Foundation and community relations, so I got to do a, uh, you know, a number of things, uh, as well as this kind of the straight day-to-day PR PR stuff. And you know, and the thing, the other thing too that I've, that I've been fortunate in my career, I've always been surrounded by really talented, fun, smart people, and that was certainly the case at the Mavericks. We had a small team, uh, but but really a a good team. And a lot of the interns that we had, I always tell people, be nice to your interns. Because as a consultant, many of my former interns have hired me. But we ha- always had great interns who went on to big, big, great things. One of whom, Mike McCarley, I later hired at NBC Sports and is now the president of Golf Channel for the last uh, 11 years. So, uh, we, you know, I benefited from a lot of people uh, being, being great at their jobs, too.
1: Yeah, obviously a lot of success there and recognized for that multiple awards uh, while your time with uh, the Mavericks. Talk about winning those and what that meant. And how you kind of just you know what you learn from those lessons you learn there.
0: You know, I think the awards. Uh, you know, Norm Sanju was the founding general manager uh, of the you know founded the expansion team. Was the general manager the first sixteen years, and he taught us about about service. You know, and and you think of you know customer service in a certain way. Well, the media w- was the customers of of the of the media services team. There was a reason we called it media services as opposed to. Media relations, or public relations, or or what have you. And now, make no mistake. You know, I worked for the Mavericks. My loyalties were there, uh, and 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 all that. But but we we took a very uh, service first approach, and I think that's the media appreciated it. And that's probably why we were recognized. It's just you know being available and accessible, being honest, being credible. Don't mislead. You don't lie to anybody. And, and this all came from, from Donald Carter, who's, who has since passed away, but was the original owner of the Mavericks. Phenomenal family in person. And there was a, a lot of, uh, you know, integrity with that ownership group and with Norm, and that, it got handed down. And I think that, that came through across the entire organization, and, and, and that's probably why the media, you know, why they voted for our department to win those things.
1: That's awesome! Congratulations on all of those. Oh, thanks. You you mentioned IU. I, I assume you were out before he took ownership. But I don't know if he was involved at all. Mark Cuban, another yeah. IU guy,
0: was he yeah. there at
1: all before you left at all?
0: No, he. Uh, I, I didn't. Uh, when he bought the team, I had just interviewed at NBC, so I was really on my way out. I know. I know Mark. It's a funny thing when the Mavericks drafted AJ Hammonds a few years ago. He 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 commented it to people you know, uh, boy, you know, this is a Purdue guy. You guys better be right or whatever. And, of course, A.J. didn't turn out so great with the, with the Mavericks or Miami or the other places uh, that he, that he uh, made his way through in the NBA. Uh, but Brian Cardinal, you know, uh, mm-hmm. not only was a key player on the Mavericks championship team in 2011, but took a charge, if I'm not mistaken, in the fourth quarter of that game, Late, certainly in the second half, late in the game, as I recall, uh, and Brian Cardinal is revered among Mavericks fans. So we've got, oh. we kind of, you know, that doesn't we that we have enough goodwill with Brian Cardinal to sort of compensate for the, uh, the AJ Hammond's not working out so well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always thought, you know, if AJ just worked, and I'm not going to, you know, trash anybody here. I don't know if, you know, he just put the work in. I, I thought he would have a successful NBA career. And I don't know if it's too late for that or not, but, well, you mentioned the good rapport there with the Mavericks. Um, uh, maybe you can give, uh, Mr. Cuban, to call and see if you can get a uh, Dakota called up there for the uh, restart of the season here.
0: Yeah, you know they love him. In fact, I, I had hoped that with the restart that he may have an opportunity. I don't know that that's going to happen. I know that uh, at one point before, because the Mavericks are one of the teams that I do media training for, and I remember the day that I went uh, to do media training uh, at the practice facility, uh, the previous day or two that weekend uh, was. Was the last weekend before training camp started, and they they literally locked Dakota Mathias out of the practice facility. Uh, they banned him because he had worked so hard. And for him, he apparently he has an entire routine with stretching before and after, and all the things that he does to get ready to play. I know he had a good good year in the in the G League, and and you know, like a lot of Matt Painter players, you know, fundamentally sound incredible work ethic. And so, yeah, he represented the Boilers, and and and, and he represents the Boilers with the Mavericks uh, very well. And I hope he gets a shot with the uh, the big league team one of these days.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. A guy I hope to have on the podcast here in the in the near future as well. And fitting that he's on the Mavericks since his nickname is the Midwest uh, the Midwest Cowboy. So That's right, I love that. Awesome. Well, yeah. Hopefully, I, I agree with you. I mean, the guy works hard, and um, it, and you know, you've seen it, like you said, in the G League where. You know, it, may, it could pay off for him. Uh, hopefully, in the near future as well. Hey,
0: today, in today's NBA, guys that can shoot it like he can, there's there there should be a place for him in the league. I hope it's in Dallas, but but uh, yeah, he's he's talented.
1: And we're talking about the Mavericks. Obviously, a, a fondness for them since that's where you spent 18 years. Or did you grow up a Bulls fan, or do you have another a team?
0: No, no, I grew up a big time Bulls fan. Went to games with my dad from the time I was. You know, in eighth grade, they had some epic playoff series with the Wilt Chamberlain era Lakers. Uh, so yeah, love the Bulls, and and I get to work with the Bulls in in uh, as in, as a, they're one of our clients, and and still, that's you know that's my second favorite team, I guess you would say, you know, from growing up there uh, as a big Bulls fan, uh, for sure.
1: Awesome, cool. Did you watch the uh, the Jordan documentary?
0: I did. I watched every second of it, and, and you know, it's an interesting thing to uh, to. My suspicion, and I, I have no inside information on this. I, I imagined uh, that that Jordan had a sense because everything he does is with a reason, and I think he probably had a sense that this was a good time to crack open the vault on that footage so that 20 years later, the the current crop of NBA players and fans, but not just fans, uh, saw what he was really about so that we don't forget Mm -hmm. what he did. Because for today's, you know, it's kind of LeBron and Kobe in many ways with young NBA fans and I think the NBA players, they think of those two as being the most influential of this generation, of this era. And I don't, I think, I think that, that, Mike wanted to do a little legacy. My hunch would be that he wanted to do a little legacy reminding uh, for people. And on that score, I think it was, it was very effective, uh, really just compelling. The guy, Jason Hare, who, who directed it, uh, was a young production assistant, uh, at NBC sports when I was there. So I knew him as a young guy, you know, he's done, he did the bears 30 for 30. He did it. He did the fab five 30 for 30, if I'm not mistaken. Um, You know, really, and this is the thing about you know the going through these places that I've worked. The best part about it has been the the relationships that I've been able to form, and just the talented people that I've gotten to be around and learn from. And Jason is one of them. That that was that's those stories were so well told, and and really just incredibly compelling uh, to to watch.
1: Cool. All right. I'm about partway through it. So I'm looking forward to finishing. I know I'm a little late yeah. to the party here, but <laughs> um, well, you, you mentioned NBC. So let's talk about that. You jumped, uh, yeah. moved from uh, Dallas to uh, working for NBC talk about your experience there and what you did.
0: Yeah. I mean, the first thing I, I, I always like to say on this, this part of the, this chapter was uh, when I got the call, NBC had offered this job to, I don't know, five or six people unsuccessfully uh, and somebody from the NBA uh, and somebody that I knew from Dallas, a couple of people had kind of put my name forward. So if you're not the first choice, don't don't get your feelings hurt. That's sort of point number one. Uh, and the second point was is that the timing for this was really bad. My wife and I had uh, had spent every penny we had to renovate an old house that we had just bought, and I got the call, uh, you know, in late 1999 to 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 buy the to to go to interview for this job. And I said, you know, the timing is all wrong. We just bought this house. And 11 weeks after we moved into that house, there was a for sale sign in the yard. <laughs> and we just kind of figured it out. And, and part of that was the support from my wife, Joe, and which is another thing I always like to tell young people, surround yourself with good people who will help you make good decisions, who you know had only have your best interests at heart. You don't have to tell 50 people or crowdsource these big life decisions. Uh, I remember her saying to me you know this is a national job this could be like going to grad school for you this is a big deal and and let's go for it and so we didn't let the short-term bad timing and the inconvenience associated with that uh, limit our long-term opportunity so uh, tremendous experience working for Dick Ebersol, uh, one of the you know creator co-creator with Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live brilliant producer of the Olympics So I I learned the practice of communications through the eye of a producer, number one. And then the second part of it was it was really a corporate communications job. And it was a ton of strategy, managing stories, managing issues, crafting message. So it took my my kind of sports PR experience with the Mavericks to another level and, and worked a few new muscles and sharpened a few new tools, and, and again, met an incredible array of really, really good people. I mentioned McCarley. Cameron Blanchard was in our department. She heads up communications now for charter communications. We had really, Kathy Connors, uh, a really good crew, uh, again, some awesome interns, and they had a blast. And at that time, you know, uh, NBC Sports had walked away from the NFL. I was there during the, the NFL wilderness period, okay. And, and two years into my time there, we walked away from Major League Baseball. So we had a lot of stuff. Obviously, the Olympics being the centerpiece. You know, I got to work three Olympics there. We had Notre Dame football, Triple Crown, NASCAR, lots of golf, including the Ryder Cup and the U.S. Open. So a lot of big time events. Uh, you know, but it was a different time in the trajectory of NBC Sports where we had to hustle and come up with some different things. and. And then, following the Athens Olympics, I had the opportunity to go to the corporate side, which opened up a whole nother set of experiences for me, being uh, as par- par- being part of NBC Universal. So, I, you know, five and a half years uh, in New York there, working at Thirty Rock, unbelievable experience. And I think about it, you know, uh, all the time. It really and without that, then all the Washington stuff doesn't happen. So it all kind of fits together.
1: Yeah, talk about your your favorite memories, or maybe even like your favorite Olympics or sport, whatever sporting event that you've, you've helped put together or covered?
0: Yeah, a couple things, Adam. They, you know, the Olympics are, are, uh, you know, on a, on a stage separate from everything else. And I would point to the 2002 Salt Lake Olympics domestic games. It was my second. I had had the Sydney experience, which was really difficult. Ratings were down. It was in September. It was weird. It was halfway around the world. So the you know, everything was on tape, you know, it was a different time, but it was a difficult business story. Great experience, learned a lot. Again, you know, you're you're tested in those tougher moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Salt Lake, the country was yearning to come together following 9-11. Uh, domestic games, U.S. Team USA crushed it. Uh, so just a fantastic professional experience. Uh, I would put that at the top. And then there were lots of other ones. The The beginning of the NASCAR uh, relationship, NBC's first go-around with NASCAR happened when I was there. Uh, The um, XFL happened there, which was a memorable, bizarre, (laughs) crazy thing to go through. I think the Triple Crown, you know, I I, I did not really grow up as a horse racing fan. Getting to go to Churchill Downs and experience that, but also getting to go behind the scenes into the jockey's room and some of those things. Yeah, tremendous experience all the golf, you know, the, the, um, you know, sitting in a trailer with Johnny Miller watching golf, you talk about getting a, uh, you know, a master's degree, or maybe even a PhD, just listening to, to Gary Koch and Roger Maltby and, and, and Johnny Miller and that crew, Dan Hicks, you know, one of the most underrated voices on, on television, you know, as the lead guy, uh, you know, in the booth for NBC, uh, You know that Tommy Roy, the producer, still there, awesome. And I just—they took me in, and uh, that was—you know—I would say really that the the golf team at NBC and the Olympics would be—you know—really the two two big things. All—all again, kind of practicing communications as through the lens of storytelling. What stories can we tell? uh, You know, in our way through through the media Uh, was really just a great great adventure.
1: That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Uh the XFL, that initial XFL experience. Was that your introduction to Jeff Brom in one of the most memorable sound bites of all time?
0: It was. I remember it from when it happened in, in real time. Uh and and you know, th- that was a cool moment. There was a lot of fun things that happened with the with the XFL. It was a big swing, uh, and it didn't work out, but they kind of had the right idea. You know, they amassed a big audience. They didn't get the football right. Uh I thought, uh, I thought interestingly, you know, 20 years later, I thought Charlie Ebersole, you know, who, you know, who, who did the Alliance of American football got the football right with Bill Polian and Troy Palomalu and, and, and several other NFL, you know, Justin Tuck and Jared Allen, he had a great team put together to get the football right. And, and, uh, and the, but the, the money ended up not being there. So, uh, but the deal with the XFL was the, the football was – they were in between two worlds. It wasn't crazy enough for those people, and it wasn't – the football wasn't good enough for the real football fans. So it kind of fell in between. Uh, being around Vince McMahon uh, was a blast. Uh, and, and you know, WWE is an incredible company, uh, incredible brand that they've built. And and I, that was the first exposure I had to Vince. So that was really interesting. And he was great to to, to work with and really incredibly – uh, smart and talented storyteller and, you know, and business executive. So again, I looked at all these experiences, even the tough ones as you, you learn something from them and you, you file it away as what what an experience this was. Now let's move on to the next, the next thing, learning, having learned something from that one.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you think the XFL would have had a little more success this
0: time around if it wasn't for coronavirus shutting things down? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think in fact, uh, <clears throat> I was in, uh, in Charlotte to attend the Mavericks game. Coincidentally, uh, I, I I guess this would have been January or well, it would have had to been when the, obviously when the XFL was playing. So it was probably February. And, um, and I was in a, we were in a sports bar right near the, near the arena. And Duke was playing Carolina and around the bar, there were almost as many people gathered around the TV, watching the XFL game as there were watching Duke Carolina. And, you know, never underestimate the appetite people have for football. And I don't know that people will go in person for an off-season league. I don't know that you're going to have you know, 60,000 people in a stadium, but people will watch it on TV. I really believe that. And I fully expect somebody will try this again. I think the XFL got coronavirus. And uh, and it sounds like that entity is not going to come back with that same group. Uh because it would have been unsustainable, I think, to to maintain it with the with all the uncertainty. That's been the the challenge with the coronavirus. It's not you know if you knew this was a ninety day thing and the vaccine is going to be at our doorstep, you could manage it. We don't know when this is going to wrap up. So so, uh, but I I do think there's a there there will be a market for a TV product for sure at some point.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I definitely like. I was more intrigued with it this time around. One because I was older, but B just. Some of the new rules and nuances of the extra point tries and just some of the other things they did kept it more football. I think they focused more on football this time and but just yeah. nuances to make it different than the NFL to kind of make it you know the sense.
0: The, the original XFL re- brought back the uh, sky cam. Now it had been used a couple of times prior to that, but the XFL brought it back. And I remember Larry Stewart, who was the media writer at the LA Times, called me on opening night. We we're at Sam Boyd Stadium in, in Las Vegas and, and uh, the director John Gonzalez was opening. you're watching play by play from the Skycam, but from the back of the quarterback, almost like you're playing you know Madden. And Larry called the trailer and said, "Is it going to look like this the whole night? This is how strange Skycam looked to people, <laughs> especially from that vantage point. Now we didn't use that vantage point the whole night. Now you wouldn't have ever you, would, you can't imagine a game without Skycam. All sorts of audio innovation came from the first XFL. And, and I think the, the rules innovations from both the Alliance of American Football and the XFL, including the kickoff and some other things, uh, you're going to see in the NFL one day. They make sense. They put player safety first. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be against player safety. You want to be for player safety. So all these things are good. They're a developmental. I mean, at some point, the NFL will, will lend its name to one of these. Uh, because the NFL needs that developmental pipeline for officials, for technology, for rules, you know, for the the, the whole thing. So I I hold out hope that there'll be a successful uh, entry in one of these times. Yeah, and it's interesting you
1: mentioned that. Then that brings up a question: Could it become a a minor league, G League type system for the NFL? You think?
0: I think it will. I really do. From the, you know, it may be eight weeks instead of fourteen weeks or whatever. But but I think there's enough of a need for. Uh, yeah, I remember Bill Polian in one of our cuz I was involved in the alliance as a consultant and Bill Polian said at the announcement that uh, there's enough except for quarterbacks which is a big caveat <laughs> there are enough players who get released on cutdown day in the NFL to stock a second league mm-hmm. you know and then filling in with some other undrafted guys and stuff but he there's enough talent to support it it's just mm-hmm. we got to figure out the somebody's got to figure out the right the right formula
1: awesome well moving on from NBC, you moved over to the US Department of Education. Talk about your jump over there and your time there.
0: Well, that was uh, you know, I was I was like an alien from outer space. And and what what happened in that one? I, I was um you know, I was working on the I alluded to my time on the corporate side at NBC Universal. Also a, a, a great experience. And uh in, in January of two thousand and five, I had not been in that role very long and uh I was riding the train one morning from our home in in Westchester, New York, into into New York City, and I I had an email on my my BlackBerry in those days from a guy named Tom Luce, who who I had known through the Mavericks. He 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 Ross Perot Jr. owned the Mavericks in between Donald Carter and Ross, and Mark Cuban, and Tom was an attorney for the Perot family. was involved when in the purchase of the team and in in Ross's operation of, of the team, Ross Jr.'s and uh, so so anyway, so, so Tom sends me, this is January of 05, President Bush has just been sworn in for a second term. I get an email one morning from, from Tom Lewis saying, would you be interested in a senior communications position with the administration in Washington? And I typed back to him, you mean the Wizards? <laughs> and, uh, and, and Tom was an advocate, still is an advocate for public education reform in Texas. And so I figured this had something to do with education policy. I also knew there were not adjectives in the English language to describe how little interest I had in whatever this was. But of course, out of respect for Tom, I was gonna listen. He proceeded to tell me I was gonna hear from a woman named Margaret Spellings, who I had never heard of. She had been a domestic policy advisor at the White House, in President Bush's first term. I figured that was something like the Josh Lyman character on, on the West Wing, which was you know, my favorite show <laughs> in that era. And he just said, she's gonna call you, you should listen to her. Sure enough, she calls and I, my opening salvo to her, she had just been sworn in. I said, congratulations, Madam Secretary, but I gotta tell you, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> so this portion of our conversation, for any young people listening, is the what not to do portion <laughs> of the conversation. So I told her, I don't know anything, this was a temporary job as a political appointee heading up communications at the US Department of Education. That means that when President Bush is done, this person's done, I'm gonna be 50 years old looking for a job just like the one I have now at NBC. These guys at NBC, these executives took a chance on me, the sports guy put me in this big communications role. I'm having a blast, I'm learning a lot, no thanks. She says, well, you at least meet me for lunch. So I'm, I'm flattered and I'm, you know, and I'm honored that she wants to talk to me. So I say, of course. And then I think, well, 50-50 shot this lunch ever, you know, never happens because she's busy and you, know, you, you kind of hear these things. Yeah. So 20 minutes later, I get a phone call setting up a lunch for the following Saturday. So I, I go to Washington and I, I'm telling myself that morning, what a waste of time this is going to be and i had to go through an interview with the office of presidential personnel and i kind of slept my sleptwalk my way through that and which I, which was embarrassing and i didn't feel good about taking it as seriously as i as i should have so i kind of rallied for my my meeting with the secretary and 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 i had some things you know she had gotten into a there were a couple issues that she was looking for some help managing and so i had some ideas for her. and my plan was to tell her I'll, I'll help you any way I can from the outside. Um, I had never been involved in politics, but I had voted for President Bush. I believed in his leadership. And I want to help you. And I'm so honored that you would ask, but I'm going to help you from the outside. And, and uh, uh, she looks at me. We sit down at this restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia. And she looks at me kind of over her menu before we've even ordered. And, and she says, I don't know what you'll do. After NBC, but this will be the most important thing you've done so far. I'm putting a team together. It's going to be great. The work is really important. We don't have a lot of time. You're going to love the president. It's going to be great for your family. And I promise, when it comes to message and communication strategy, I won't make a move without you. You will always be in the room. And I just looked at her and I was just, I I love the gleam in her eye and the sense of mission and purpose. When she said, the work is important. I felt this little, you know, tug on my heartstrings. That what I was doing at NBC, on some level, wasn't really that important. I mean, entertaining people is important, wasn't that important? And uh, so I walked out of there, and I called my wife, and I and I said, you know, we got a little bit of a situation here, and uh, this is kind of interesting. And you know, Joe was all for it, and uh, I slow played it. I agonized. Uh, you know, hand wringing time. How am I going to tell these people at NBC who took a chance on me? And uh, ultimately, uh, I, I did. Uh, I think I was secretly hoping I would fail the background check, uh, <laughs> but somehow I got through. And, uh, and so in May of 2005, you know, early in the second term for President Bush, I went to the US Department of Education. I was there 13 months, and it was a great experience. Uh, and my job really there was to, was to, was to turn the, the no-child-left-behind policy into plain language and help people understand why it was a good thing for for our country. And that was a tough, tough yeah. – you know, the teachers' unions were vociferously opposed. It was a political uh, issue, the likes of which I had never been faced with before. Again, learned a lot. Uh, great people there, and, and many of whom I'm still in touch with. Uh, never in a million years imagining that I would get called up to the big league, so to speak, with an opportunity to be White House communications director, which happened in July of, of 06. I
1: was gonna say, you didn't spend too much long there because I actually have the press release here from July of 2006 when you were, when you were now, called up, so, so you say, uh, talk about that, getting that call. I don't know if it's, you know, if President Bush comes in and asks you or how that, how did that all play out?
0: Yeah, you know, Dan Bartlett, who uh, at that time was a counselor to the president, now he's a, a big dog with uh, Walmart, he, uh, and I had met Dan, uh, he, he, uh, big sports fan, UT guy, and, and um, Dallas, grew up in the Dallas area, big Mavericks fan, and I thought, you know, I, so I got a message from his assistant one day saying, can you be at the White House at three o'clock to meet with Dan, and I really thought it was probably about, uh, you know, he just wanted to get to know me and talk sports and talk about NBC and and all that now of course I knew that Nicole Wallace now famously on and on MSNBC every day was leaving and Nicole had been involved in my recruitment by Margaret Spelling so I had I, I knew Nicole and Nicole had decided to, to leave at that point to, to go to New York and and um and so so I, I go to meet Dan and for the first 10 or 15 minutes or five or ten minutes of our conversation it's all what I thought it might be small talk and sports <laughs> and NBC And then he says, I'm, 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 uh, I'm going to quit beating around the bush. I want to talk to you about Nicole's job. And, uh, I just looked at him and said, what do I have to do? There was no, there was no, this isn't the sort of thing you say you got to think about. (laughs) And, and, uh, and it was funny because he he said to me, uh, you know, the, the first thing you would do as communications director was help lead the planning for the first anniversary of Katrina, the fifth anniversary of nine 11, uh, the economy at that time was booming. And because of Iraq, you know, the president get, didn't get a lot of credit for it, didn't have the opportunity to talk about it a lot. So he said, think about, about the economy, how to talk about that. Uh, immigration, comprehensive immigration reform was something the president was gonna take on. Think about that. And I went home that night and I just kind of smiled to myself as these guys, these, these, these really smart people that work in the West Wing, are asking me for ideas about how to talk about comprehensive immigration reform. And I just sort of chuckled and did my best and wrote a few memos and things. And, but the the main part of of this story really is I had nine interviews. Josh Bolton, the chief of staff twice, uh, all these interviews uh, culminating with the president in, in, you know, in July uh, of 06. And early july it was right after his birthday uh right after the 4th of july i remember and and so how do you prepare for an interview with the president of the united states and and and, and i i knew i had met him in a, in a receiving line in a photo line i didn't know him I, people thought i might have known him from dallas because of his involvement with the rangers that i did not and, and and i had this feeling that they, they told me the interview was going to be personal in nature It was, you know, that he's kind of a field player. He's going to want to get to know you, a little bit of a chemistry check. Uh, So don't worry about, you know, your communications ideas about a comprehensive immigration reform or the economy or whatever. So I I knew that my sports background would be a good connector, but I also did not want to come across as some guy who's in, you know, five fantasy leagues and has nothing (laughs) else to offer. So I really sort of, I gave this a lot of thought, like, how can I get to this, this point? Well, so sure enough, you know, I go and I, I got really early. He's early. He's, he's famously early for everything. So I arrived like an hour early. And, <laughs> and so I'm waiting and, you know, you get all hyped up and calm down and I'm nervous. And, 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 and when the time came, they, they led me into the Oval Office. I felt like I was walking onto a movie set. The lights were bright. He, and I said, sir, it's an honor to be here. And he said, yeah, it is. It's the Oval Office. Take a look around. Isn't this great? How cool is this? He immediately put me at ease, which is what he does with people when he senses they're they are likely to be nervous meeting the president of the United States. So we sat down and I noticed there was a briefing paper on the end table with my name on the top. I thought, man, you know, who knows what they've come up with. And his first question to me was, uh, uh, I know that you're in education with Margaret. I know you worked at NBC. I know you worked at the Mavericks, but where are you from? And I looked at him and said, Chicago, sir, White Sox, not Cubs. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, oh, we got to, he looked at Dan Bartlett and said, we got a baseball fan. And I said, sir, until, until this moment, the highlight of my life, except for the birth of my kids and all that stuff, was being at game two of the 05 World Series when Scott Petsednik hit the walk-off homer. And I knew that he was an American League guy. I knew Jerry Reinsdorf, the White Sox owner, was instrumental in bringing him into baseball as the Rangers managing general partner years before. And, and, and I just decided that this would be a good icebreaker. And, and this is where, you know, sports is such a great connector in so many ways. We could spend the entire podcast talking about that. But... But that's what happened. And it was our our original launch launching pad for a our relationship. And we talked sports a lot, including during some tough times, uh, you know, over the two and a half years that I had the privilege of being his White House communications director.
1: That's so cool. I love this, Kevin. This is some awesome stuff. And like, yeah, I agree with you. We, we should probably uh, reconnect for a part two at some point And we could just uh, Talked for a long time. That's awesome. Sure. I love that, and he sounds so you know down to earth, and I, like you said, put you at ease. It's kind of.
0: Well, when I, I said it's an honor to be here, he said, "Yeah, it's an honor for me too." You know, and 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 that put me at ease, and that's what he does. And and people made fun of him for that, who didn't understand why he was doing it. Uh, you know, that the stakes were higher than how he was going to look to a to a late night comic where he would you know when he would inevitably play a musical instrument or do a dance as as part of some cultural thing in a foreign country they would make fun of him. He knew that it was, it was diplomacy on a very meaningful level for the people in that village or in that city, you know, overseas. So, so, uh, but you know, I, I mean, I've been gone from there more than 11 years and I think about it every single day. It was a, you know, all of these experiences were, were enriching and life changing in their own way. Uh, But I still can't believe I had the opportunity to, 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 uh, to work there. And, and, uh, uh, you know it was just i'm just grateful that i had the chance and and you know i i get to be involved as a as a senior advisor to the bush presidential center i'm there a couple couple days a month and uh have a continue that relationship now which which any way i can give back i want to uh, because that really changed the trajectory of my of my whole life not to mention uh you know the the ability to start a business and have have those experiences all that i learned from the great people that i got to work with you talk about a talented group of people that are all pulling in the same direction all egos checked at the door it really was just a phenomenal experience and and also i have to say he and mrs bush created this environment you know they understood how the long hours and that everybody was making a sacrifice people were away from their families and so they just created this incredible work uh, working environment uh, that i always tell people it was, it's, it's way more, it's more fun than you probably imagine, especially given the time that I was there, you know, with, with some of the difficulties uh, first Iraq and then the financial crisis at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you pull together and you do the best you can based on some principles and and you'll be okay. And that, that was the, that was the, the, the overarching thing I took away from that time there was you make decisions based on, on principles. They don't all work out, but you, you do the best you can by by, by attaching your decision making to something that has a foundation to it
1: awesome yeah he's incredibly uh, well spoken and compassionate man you know handling some very challenging times in America following 9/ eleven and obviously having to make those tough decisions as far as war goes and everything like that and and I even saw I, w- I meant to print it off before we started recording Kevin but just a really well um, written tweet or statement if you will you know a few weeks ago when a lot of this uh, uh, racial tension was going on just a yeah i uh, just incredibly well said and i wish i had it with me here to read it yeah you
0: know it was incredible and uh, and uh, i wish i could say i had something to do with that because it was br- beautiful and moving and brilliant and powerful and it's you know he he, he 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 had a sense for what the country you know we need to come together as a country uh especially in trying times and so yeah that was that was uh that was very well done
1: so curious you know when You'd see uh, President Bush speaking at events or on national television. Are you behind a lot of th- that, all of it, behind part of it, and writing his speeches, or does he write them? Um, or how does that kind of, if you're allowed to pull yeah. back the curtain and kind of tell us how that kind of works?
0: During his time in office? Yes. Yeah, you know, my role uh, as communications director, you know, the way we had it set up is it was a counselor to the president, first Dan Bartlett and then Ed Gillespie. And beneath that, you had the communications office, which I led, the press office, which was Tony Snow was the press secretary, and then Dana Perino, and then the speech writing office. My, my job was really the message, but more long-term than today. So the press office was what's happening today. Communications office is more the strategy and the longer-term uh, message. So when it came to speeches, uh, my role would be more of a of an editor and a contributor, and at the front end, helping helping develop what the message was going to be. Uh, You know, Bill McGurn, who was the chief uh, speech writer for a lot of the time I was there, and is now on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. He writes the Main Street column, which is awesome. He used to say, you know, President Bush is the commander in chief, he's also the editor in chief. (laughs) And he was very hands on with the speeches. And we got to, I got to be a part of that that process where we would go through the the speeches. I learned an enormous amount during that process. Uh, I was definitely you know I did some some on camera stuff w- again, mostly about why is he in Toledo today? Why is this the message around a lot around the state of the Union? or when there was a policy effort like immigration, I would do interviews laying out the policy and how the president was rolling it out. Again, more focused on the long term than what the press secretary would do from the briefing room uh, on a daily basis. and in our time, it was a daily basis. Uh, so that was that's and, and also the production of presidential events uh, was fell under communications, the website, non White House media fell under the the jurisdiction of the of the communications office. So, uh, again, phenomenal team. And it was it was uh, just an incredible uh, experience.
1: Awesome. Did you uh, ever want to be in that daily press uh, room doing those briefings?
0: You know, it's funny. I, uh, people used to say to me, you have the right temperament for it. I never felt like, I never, I don't think, I would not have been prepared to do that at the time that I came there. You, you really have to have a sense of the, the trajectory of the administration, of the policy, how things were formulated. Uh, it's a really, really difficult job. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that I would never have wanted to do it. Uh, I never really thought about it a whole lot because it was in good hands with Tony and Dana, and I don't think I was prepared then. Uh, to do it. Uh, you know, it's funny. Tony and Dana had completely different different approaches. You know, Tony, may he rest in peace, brilliant guy. He had been a talk show radio host. He had been a column writer, an opinion column writer, I should say. And he loved, he knew how to express a point of view and an opinion. And he loved the swashbuckling buckling with the reporters and was very skilled at his feet. And Dana is an incredible preparer and never went to the briefing room without knowing exactly how she was going to handle the five toughest questions that she knew were coming. She got the information she needed. She knew from the chief of staff and the president how far she should go. And And I would have done it kind of like Dana, where I would have been, I would have really, I would not have gone in there freelancing. Tony could get away with it a little bit more. Uh, really, really tough job. Dana did it incredibly well. Uh, and and so did Tony, just different approaches, both very effective. Uh, and and uh, Dana's book is fantastic. It's called The Good News Is, uh, for people who are interested in that. Marlon Fitzwater wrote a great book about being press secretary. He overlapped both President Reagan and and President Bush 41. So if people are interested in that job, there's some good stuff out there to, to read about. Ari Fleischer wrote one called Taking heat, I believe. Also excellent. He was President Bush's first uh, press secretary. Gotcha.
1: And you know, I have to get—we don't have to get political here. But you, you watch today's uh, with uh, Kaylee, who has to take right. up all those questions. Is, it, is the media tougher today than it was then, or is it just the 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 climate we're in right now with a lot of hostility and tension? You know, like,
0: the media. I don't. Of course, the, what's changed with the media is the speed. Uh, and and there is no news cycle anymore. It's ongoing. It never stops. The media was was the media's job is to challenge the president. We need a strong media, uh, and, and it's in our constitution. You know, so so we obviously took a lot of tough questions. Uh, I'm sure you know you can go back and see uh, from the from the earliest presidents in the, in the history of our nation that they took some tough questions. So. I don't think that I think the part that has really changed the most is the is the speed of just the way it all moves with social media and digital media. Uh, and that requires a different a little bit of a different approach. You know, the in the you know, kind of the really through President Clinton all, and into the first term of President Bush a little bit, you really had to worry about that the newspaper headlines in the morning and the evening news were kind of the two drivers of 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 how things went. Uh, and and those days, of course, are are long gone. And I think I think that's the the primary primary difference. Obviously, the political tenor of Washington is really bad, but it was bad when, when President Bush was in office. It was bad when President Clinton was in office. so i don't I don't think that that's the difference. I think the difference is the speed.
1: Gotcha. And talk about you know the importance of the relationships you you know we talked about earlier, one, um, some awards while well, with the Mavericks because of your good rapport you were well respected by the media and um, One like I said awards for that talk about the importance of that in in today's climate and the importance of Relationships and like you said uh, being honest and not lying to the to the media
0: You know the, the as a communications person what you have to offer is information and access and again your loyalties are to you to your employer but I you know I um I, I taught a class uh, with John Cirillo, uh, the longtime Madison Square Garden communications VP and Nick's PR person at NYU one, one semester. And the first night a woman asked me, have you ever been asked to lie to a reporter? Uh, and, and, I, and I haven't, but there were times when I've had a boss, not President Bush, uh, but I've had bosses who would say, well, why can't you just tell him this?
1: Yeah.
0: And I would say, well, that happens to not not be true. Now, what we can tell him is, I can't tell you, we're not going to get into that for these reasons. I always try to, you know, give a reason why you can't comment. Either it's premature or there's an investigation or there's potential litigation, or we're just not ready to talk about it. Uh, And and so you you cannot mislead the media. You've got to shoot with them, shoot straight with them. But that doesn't mean you have to tell them everything in media training i always tell our clients you've got to be 100 percent honest but you do not have to be 100 percent open <laughs> sometimes there are just things you you can't say publicly usually with for very legitimate reasons uh so that, that's how i would 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 you know would, would would approach that
1: i like that slogan we have a reporter here who always says you know the cover-ups always turns out to be worse than the crime
0: <laughs> you know, the the cover-up is always worse than the crime, and, and people should learn from that, uh, and, 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 but sometimes they don't, you know, Volkswagen got caught in a big cover-up uh, not that many years ago, it still happens.
1: Uh, you were with uh, uh, President Bush through the end of his term, I assume?
0: Yes, oh yeah.
1: Okay, and then since, since then or shortly after, you started your own company, uh, Kevin Sullivan Communications. Talk about jumping into that arena.
0: You know, I never really aspired to to work for myself, but I, I thought I had an opportunity here with this unusual background of sports, the corporate world at NBC, and this political experience to to do something that would be of value to people and to, that could help people. And and uh, so we started, you know, 11 years ago, uh, and and built it steadily through the years, and and it's been a blast. You know, it's really been. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, in a given day, I remember one time going from Monster Jam to Condoleezza, an event with Condoleezza Rice at the Bush Center, which I don't know if anybody's ever been able to say that statement before, you know, that, so I would do a lot of work in sports and entertainment, mostly around message and strategy, presentation skills, coaching, media training, crisis and issues management, a lot in sports and entertainment quite a bit of corporate and, and nonprofit uh, work as well. And you know it's been very rewarding. And I get to, you know, when you work for yourself, you have more bosses than you ever had, but I do get to sort of decide at least where I work from. And you have a little bit of scheduling flexibility or a little bit of control at times over the schedule. Uh, but I've learned a lot, you know, and I, and I could, I'm big on, I like, I, I'm a curious person and I, and enjoy uh, learning new things. And, 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 uh, and that I get to do working on different issues all the time.
1: Awesome. And quite the uh, impressive list of clients as well. Talk about just how wide ranging that is.
0: Yeah, you know, the NHL has been a client for a long time. And, and uh, the PGA of America is a good client for a long time. And, uh, and, and a lot of teams, I've had the privilege of working with uh, 70 uh, around 70 pro teams in major college programs, including the Boilers, <laughs> uh, Boiler Up, Hammered Down, and rest in peace, Morgan Burke. Uh, yeah. You know, you mentioned Tom and Tim Newton earlier. You know, we got to teach uh, Morgan's class a few times uh, together, his sports uh, management class that he taught, and that was that was sad news. He was a he was a he was a great person. Nobody cared about Purdue uh, more, you know, certainly not the the cared about the student athletes more, but But, um, but, but so, yeah, I mean, you never know what a given day is going to bring much like working at the white house. So, uh, it's, it's been, been fun and, and, uh, been been glad I did it. You know, again, it wasn't necessarily what I thought I was going to do, but, uh, kept an open mind and my wife and I decided to go for it. And I'm I'm glad we did. Awesome.
1: I meant to ask you this when we were talking about your time at the white house, did your, did your paths ever cross with, uh, uh, now President Daniels, well, you were uh, was he there at the same time? No,
0: he, he you know, it's funny because I, I've never met him. And uh, Margaret Spellings, who was my boss, when she was Secretary of Education, they are very close. You know, he was the OMB director, Office of Management and Budget in the first term. So he was gone before I got there. Uh, so I don't know him. I actually had an appointment with him one time when I was on campus at Purdue. But either my schedule changed or his schedule changed and it didn't happen uh, but I, I hope to be able to to meet him uh, one day. I think he's done a phenomenal job as Purdue as Purdue president, and you know, uh, uh, you know, hope to meet him in person one day. I get all of his emails and follow his adventures uh, for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's selfishly, I kind of was hoping he was going to make that run for office back in uh, what, 2016 or whatever it was. Uh, you know what?
0: He may have gotten elected, and the course of history uh, it could be different. So I, he'd be. Uh, you know, personal opinion, I think he would have been a great president. So yeah. he was a great governor. and uh, you know that executive experience that you're seeing now at Purdue uh, you know I think is 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 really, really uh, meaningful and and should be you know uh, is a is a good qualifier for that job.
1: yeah, it's definitely worked out for us as as Purdue people that he's he's up there and and done some, yeah. some really amazing things up at purdue and and moving that campus well, forward.
0: It, you know, you look at the the Kaplan acquisition. You look at Purdue Global. Now he didn't know there was going to be a pandemic, but those sort of things position Purdue for the future really shrewdly. So again, is a leader. You got to have vision and other things too, um, including being a good communicator, which which he is. So yeah, way to go, uh, Mitch.
1: <laughs> well, moving back to, you, to your uh, your uh, communications program here, your your um, uh, your role now. Talk about if people want to learn from you, you offer strategic planning and, and talk about the website and where they can get more information on that.
0: Yeah, you know, the, I'm on Twitter at, at KSully with an IE on the end. Uh, uh, website is KSullivancoms.com. Uh and yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. People can find me on social media and and uh, uh, you know, and, and for the Purdue any Purdue students who are who are listening. Uh, Feel free to to, uh, to reach out on LinkedIn or however uh, I'd be happy to help. You know, I mean, a lot of people helped me along the way, starting, by the way, with the Tom Stoop, who was the sports information director at Purdue, when I was a sophomore and walked into Mackey Arena on a cold call. Paul Jensen, we're still friends today. He was the assistant SID. Karen Croak, now Karen Croak-Heisler, who was the grad assistant uh, you know, all of this stuff we're talking about today, it all started for me at Purdue in Mackey Arena in the Sports Information Office. So I'm happy to to return the favor to Purdue students who are, who want to, and not even in sports, but if you're a a communications major or whatever you're trying to do, feel free to uh, reach out. And I would be happy to, uh, I may not be able to respond immediately, but I will respond as soon as I can and offer any guidance or help, whatever whatever it might be worth. Uh, maybe not much but a lot of people helped me along the way and a lot of it my success whatever I've had uh, is directly related to the fact that I that I went to Purdue including meeting Joanne there you know so uh, and and all the the many many you know friends so uh, you know so I'm open for business if people want to reach out it's not not I don't mean it sounds like I'm looking for people to, to, that are going to hire me. I'm open to help people if they want to reach <laughs> out to our Purdue students or recent grads. That's
1: awesome. I love how it all comes full circle back to Purdue. Right. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I appreciated this uh, almost hour we've had a uh, chat right now, but I do want to bring up the book you released, I believe in 2015, a digital copy, uh, right. breaking, breaking through communications, lessons from the locker room, the boardroom and the oval office. Talk about the importance right. of putting that book out and what you hope people get from it.
0: You know, it's the hardest thing that I've ever done. To be honest with you, it should have taken six months. It took me four and a half years. Uh, and it basically, the first chapter is kind of my story. Some of the things we've talked about today, and then I just take communications and the lessons that I learned from the Mavericks, NBC, NBC, NBC Sports, NBC Universal, uh, and the White House primarily, and, and and just sort of the importance of storytelling and and social media and citizen journalism and just the way things go today it's really it's really it's kind of intended for for communications professionals I would say uh is a little bit of a of a handbook but but uh, it was a fun thing to do and 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 again it took me way longer than it should have but it was a it was a a fun thing to finish again uh with the my wife kept saying when are you gonna finish that thing and she basically uh, embarrassed me into finally finishing it so it's been uh, five years ago, uh, as of a couple weeks ago, and it's the lessons that are in there still kind of hold up. Uh, so, yeah, you can find it on Amazon or wherever you buy ebooks for, uh, for $4.99. So it's a bargain uh, for sure. And I'm a soft touch. So any Purdue students who email me, I'll send you a PDF of it for free or recent graduates. That's awesome. I love it. That's at is the email. Love
1: it. And and the importance of communication, I know we kind of talked about this beforehand. I want to talk about this. The importance of um, communications and building uh, trust, and using communications between media uh, people like yourself and your experience as a way to earn trust, especially uh, you know in times like this that we're uh, that we're currently
0: in. Yeah, it's 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 the way. Let me back up one one step. When I do executive media training, I always start by by saying how effective you are as a communicator is a direct reflection. on on your ability as a leader. You can't be a great leader if you can't communicate your vision and what you want people to rally behind. Well, I said that to to someone recently in advance of a presentation I was gonna do, and she said, why don't you talk more about, I left out one key part. Your, Your ability to be an effective communicator, not only does it reflect on your ability as a leader, and you can't lead if you can't communicate, but through good communication, you will facilitate trust. And this this person that I was going to be working with said, "Can you say a little bit more about that?" And so I, I took a little bit of a, a deep dive. And, and and the thing is 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 here's how it works: If you're going to get someone to trust you, what you're talking about has to be of primary importance to your audience. It's got to be about what's important to them, not you. Uh, so you sort of start start with your with your audience. You're, your tone matters. We're seeing right now uh, people are, are going through hardship. And we have the COVID-19 experience. Now we have the post-George Floyd experience where all of us hopefully are growing and understanding uh, that the experience that many black people have had in America is different than the experience that I've had, let's say. So we've got to be listeners, which is a big part of earning trust. Uh, you've got to be consistent. You can't be a hashtag, a hit and run. Your words have to be backed up with action. You know, really, really important. You've got to be willing to admit, you know, mistakes. I mentioned the PGA of America. I do quite a bit of work in the golf world. The golf industry right now is acknowledging some past failings as part of their, uh, in, in hopes of communicating effectively, uh, with the black community and, and others. Uh, it's okay to say I don't have all the answers. Here's what we're working on. You know, you ha- again, you have to have action. You've got to be willing to be vulnerable. You've got to listen. Uh, I heard Pastor Richie Butler uh, from the St. Paul United Methodist Church in Dallas speak about this topic a couple of weeks ago through a, 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 an event the Bush Center did, and and he said, you know, don't. It's, it's a it's a dialogue, not a not a debate. It's a dialogue, not a monologue. Be self-aware. No judging. Don't go in with an agenda like you're going to accomplish something. Listen. Seek to understand not to be understood. You know, all these things are important if you want to be, you know, open, honest, transparent, and over time, earn trust. Now, these things we're talking about are true without COVID-19 and without without the post-George Floyd, uh, you know, conversation that we're having Mm-hmm. Having, but they're extra important when you're in a national emergency. So just things to consider for everybody. Uh, and and then one other thing, Adam, I want to tack on uh, before we wrap up is you know I've mentioned relationships a few times, and again, for any, especially for the young people who are so uh, so uh, skilled at digital communication. No matter how great the technology becomes, the ideas are what matter most and the relationships are what matter most, not the not the platform or the technical mechanism or the device in your hand. And so I would encourage people don't rely on just on text and email and and WhatsApp and, and TikTok and everything, whatever comes next. Pick up the phone and talk to people. You know, it's hard now, you know, do a Zoom call instead of a phone call so you can connect a little bit better, like we're trying to here. And and every good thing that's happened to me, I can go back, the job I got with the Mavericks, there was a relationship in, involved. The, the, the NBC job was re- multiple relationships from the NBA. The White House, the education job was a relationship from the Mavericks. The White House, you know, was Margaret Spelling's vouching for me. You know, like, I, I had a, a neighbor in Virginia when I worked at the White House who said, man, you've gotten all these jobs. You must have the greatest resume in the world. Would you please review my resume? I said, I'm happy to take a look at, at your resume, but my resume had nothing to do with it. It was relationships, you know, people I had worked with or who had seen me work in action or whatever. And and uh, now resumes are important for sure, but, but just keep in mind, and again, I'm kind of speaking to the young people in the audience, I guess, you know, for the people who, who, who um, not that they could help you one day, even though they might, its that's not why you do it. You do it. It's because that's what's fulfilling and enriches your life, and, and it's fun. And, and uh, you know, I'm hoping to speak to Brian McIntyre tomorrow. For those of you who saw, who watched The Last Dance, he worked for the Bulls, and then during the Jordan years, he was the head of communications at the NBA. We're still in touch. He is one of the great relationships people of all time and he also had one of the greatest PR person quotes of all time in the last dance and those those of you you who have seen it know what I'm talking about uh, where he refuted the allegation that Michael Jordan's two years or so a year and a half or so in baseball was because it was actually a gambling suspension Uh, but I love the fact that I you know that I stayed in touch with many of the people that that I worked with as a 19 year old uh, in the Purdue SID office with, you know, th- that's what makes the world go round. We can, you can help each other, even if they're not paying you to do it, you can help each other. And and that's th- those last couple of points, I think are, are ones that are good to, to kind of leave the, our-, our, our, our listeners with on the subject of communications and, and my little saga uh, such <laughs> as it is.
1: I love it, Kevin. This is awesome stuff. Man. And like I said, we could talk longer. I have a lot other stuff on my list here, but let's wrap it up. That was great stuff to, to end this conversation on. I I really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Boiler up, hammer down. And, and, uh, let's hope we're back on the field, uh, you know, soon, sooner than later. And, and, uh, just, just great to be with you today. And thanks again for having me. You too, Kevin. Take care, man. Boiler up. Boiler up.
1: A reminder, you can follow the full steam ahead podcast on Twitter at full steam pod And you can always listen to, like, comment, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and tune in. Thanks again for listening to the Full Steam Ahead podcast. Until next time, I'm Adam Bartels.